0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You can join me tonight, if you would, in Philippians 3.17. We'll be covering the final portion of Philippians chapter 3 tonight, verses 17 through 21. Our citizenship is in heaven and from which we're eagerly waiting for a Savior and uh, who's going to transform our bodies. And uh, today would be a great day for that, I tell you, I can, I can clear my calendar and I can be caught up to the clouds and uh, I would I'd like nothing better. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father for His faithfulness to bless our time of study, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight thankful for your grace and truth, thankful for this time together. And for the living and abiding Word of God. and Father, I thank you for a lampstand that honors the truth, for our brothers and sisters that are hungry to be fed. Father, for uh, the priority that is to grow in grace and knowledge. And uh, so we commit to you our time, ask for your blessings, hedge us about and protect us, Father. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, we want to take a few minutes for Q&A. We had a, a pending question from last week, and I don't know that I really have an answer other than Um, Randy had asked about the bad report in Genesis 37 2. It's kind of phrased in an interesting way when it does say when Joseph was when he was 17 years of age was pastoring the flock with his brothers it says um, while he was still a youth along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah his father's wives and that they're also his brothers and it's kind of a an interesting way to phrase that to talk about his brothers and then also to talk about um, the, the, the sons of the, of the concubines there, um, and then it says, "And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father." And Randy's question was, "Well, what's this bad report? And was it um, uh, was it was it a sin on on Joseph's part that he was slandering his brothers and, and giving something that was untrue, or was it an accurate report?" that uh, was simply bad because what the boys were doing was bad and uh, and so forth? And was he just being a, a self-righteous tattletale in this process? Um, and, and and really I think we get confused because the, the the verse order traps us. We like things to be in a nice sequence and that's very American and very English but not very Hebrew at all. And so uh, it is later down that uh, that Jacob asks him to go and, and report back um, after he talks about this dream. Um, so yeah, then there's later on that um, Jacob says, go and, and and report back to me and let me know about their welfare and see how they're doing. And uh, I need to remember to turn this off so I can <clears throat> scan through the text a little faster. Anyway, so Randy had this question and wanted to know about this bad report and, and so forth. And I don't know that I have any different answer tonight than I had last week or two weeks ago. Um, I still have the sense that everything we know about Joseph's character is positive, that uh, if, if this is carnal on his part, if he's just wrong to give a slanderous report, that would be out of character with everything else we know about Joseph everywhere in the book of Genesis. And so I've never read it that way, I don't take it that way. Um, and then I think based on what we know with respect to the brothers, once that bad report was given, they, you know, they were intent on murder. They were intent on bringing Joseph to harm. So um, yeah, I tend to put all the guilt on the brother's side of things and very little on Joseph's side of things uh, related to that. Verse 13, yes, where Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock? And so he says, um, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. So it may have been something similar to that, that caused that first report way back in, in verse two, but Anyway, so that's kind of the follow-up there. Um we have new questions tonight, I understand, so we get a microphone ready to go and and uh anyone want the lead-off question or I'll just give it to Randy. All right. And then Carol, okay. <coughs> uh
1: my questions in Genesis twelve three. Mm-hmm. And it's a, a text question. Uh, at the end of that verse, uh, it mentions earth, and uh, uh, in, in all in, in you, all the families of the earth shall be shall be blessed. But the word for earth there is adama, adama, which is only two hundred twenty five times, and it's more of ground versus earth, which is Eretz. 2500 times and so he's using the word earth but in hebrew it's it's the other and i think it's significant and i don't know the significance
0: yeah i tend to think eretz uh usually highlights it's usually translated land
1: instead of earth and uh, well, Gen- genesis 12 1 it's earth earth earth, earth constantly right. earths, or however how you say that word which 2500 times but then mm-hmm. this time is of all the families it's the word ground and it's mm-hmm. so little used, 225 as opposed to 2,500. I think there is something significant there, but I don't know what it was. And I just thought Am I might just be picky. Mm-hmm. No, I believe in
0: verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, so that means that God uses Adama when He wants to use Adama, and He uses uh, Eretz when He wants to use Eretz. Um, I think in most cases Eretz is rendered land, and it refers specifically to the Promised Land, that refers to the land I will show you, the land of blessing, the land flowing with milk and honey. Every time you have those land passages, it's always Eretz in those land passages. Adama uh, does speak of earth, and of course it's where Adam came from. Adam came from the Adama and uh, the connection there. I will uh, jot myself a note and see if I change my opinion in the next week or two. Um, let's see, selection and add a note.
1: My current thinking is that it'll be all the families of the earth, and not just the jewish family oh totally and so i'm thinking that that's might be what's going on there in that verse but i don't know if i'm reaching or or what
0: (laughs) no definitely it it is a global promise to all of humanity and that it's the abrahamic branch of humanity that's going to bless the non-abrahamic branch in other words it's the jews are going to bless the gentiles because the gentiles is everybody that's not the jews and so yeah that's the promise all the families of the earth will be blessed okay
1: Thank you. You got time for one more? You sure. Might, uh, was numbers 14, numbers 14 24. Uh Talking about his servant, Caleb. It says there that uh, because he has a, had a different spirit and has followed me fully. And I didn't know what the <laughs> word, why is he saying that Caleb has a different spirit? I mean, was it just he was faithful uh, or, you know, was he? I've pondered this for years. <laughs> okay. is that, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Also, uh, do you know Caleb's dad's name? Oh, I There's did. two different names, and why does he have two dads? And why is he Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, in some passages, and why is he Caleb, the son of somebody else, in other passages? And and I hate uh, it when
1: you do this to me. Now we're <laughs> yeah. studying all that. And, and is he
0: really in the tribe of Judah, or was he adopted into the tribe of Judah? Is he really a Gentile that became adopted into the into the tribe of Judah? And uh, so, as as a different spirit. It's uh, it's it's a curious expression, and I don't know. I mean, Caleb means dog, and dog is an unclean animal, and and it's it's unthinkable that that God-fearing Jewish parents would name their kid dog, um, and is the only one in the Old Testament in 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 that regard. So, it's uh, it's likely that he may even be of a Gentile origin, and and wore the name dog with honor, you know, like that woman that talked to Jesus about getting some table scraps, you know. Saying even a even a Gentile dog can get some table scraps every now and then, so um, yeah, Caleb is is a marvelous character, and and I don't know that I have an answer for you tonight or anytime soon, but I've been I've been chewing on that phrase different spirit for for quite a while, and I think it's neat that he was uh, <laughs> he was. Uh, Caleb's a hero because how old is he? I mean, he's, he was over 20 at the Exodus. He lived through the whole 40-year wilderness wanderings. He's, he's, he's at least in his 60s, most likely he's in his 70s or 80s. <coughs> and, um, cause he was, uh, he was, a, he was the chief of the, of the spies that went in. So, um, it's curious to me. And then when they're conquering, uh, the city, they're conquering Hebron. And of course there's giants there and that. And anyway, Caleb, uh, He he still had a young girl uh, of marriageable age. He said, "You know, I'll give the hand of my daughter to the first man up there to kill that giant." You know, and it's kind of neat the uh, the whole backstory here on Caleb. Well, thank uh, you.
1: You gave me a lot there. Appreciate (laughs) it. You're welcome.
0: All right, crossing the aisle then.
2: Okay, so this is the conversation we had at dinner. Um, It started out about the Lord's Prayer, okay, and how the Catholics have changed from. Do not lead us into temptation.
0: Only in in Italian. They only changed the Italian translation. They didn't change the Latin or the English translation, but I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Pope just changed. Lead us not into temptation to something else. Yeah, whatever. Do not.
2: (coughs) Yeah, whatever. Anyway, so we were were talking about how God doesn't lead us into temptation, Mm -hmm. but then we... Um, one of the books Deborah reads was John Piper, and he pointed out, Well, that in Jesus said, When the Spirit, so Jesus on Matthew 4 1, mm-hmm. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, right? So, and I'm like, Okay, well, that's the was it Documazo? Is that the prove your faithfulness? Mm-hmm. So Anyway, first of all, is that's weird because we always say God doesn't.
0: The book of James says that He Himself cannot be tempted, and He Himself does not tempt anybody.
2: Right. So that's right. a little. There's that. And then the <coughs> other one is, um, what what does it actually say in the the Greek or whatever for, lead us not
0: into temptation?
2: Okay, there you go. Yes. So okay.
0: Because so. that's what it says, and because it plainly says that is what sparks the discussion related to well, what does that mean, or how. You know, um, because we walk with him and where he leads, you know, that's the, the. when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for the Lord is with me, his rod and the staff comfort me. Um, and so this is in the Life of Christ notebook uh, as we looked at that. And I had some brilliant points there. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> that I should look up. You have to look
0: up because I don't remember them tonight. But, okay. but yeah, it's a, it's a it's a puzzle.
2: Okay, so it's a pu- because of the Matthew the Matthew Four I mean the Matthew one whatever it was one whenever it said that that Jesus led him, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to right. be tempted that 's just weird
0: to be tempted by the devil, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that is per, uh, Perazzo because the devil does the tempting right uh, when God permits the tempting and when he permits the tempting, yeah. he uses it for his documento evaluation, right. and that's that's when it, whenever he permits it, but if he permits it, then uh, it's for his purpose, not for the tempter's purpose, right? And so yeah. he's going to use it to glorify his son, and and so forth. Okay. Right.
2: But it's a puzzle. All this is kind of weird. If the if the the spirit can't lead us into the desert to be tempted, I mean, it just is all very right. Because that's the, the the actual.
0: Okay, Matthew six thirteen, and. Uh, 441 Volander Life Christ. <laughs> Here's the Life of Christ series notebook. Sermon on the Mount. Let me remind myself what we did with this.
2: So there you go, Not, number 9.
0: The so-called Lord's Prayer is actually the New Disciples Prayer, yes. establishes prayer principles for new believers to follow. Adoration before the Heavenly Father, anticipation of His coming kingdom, assent to His will, acceptance of daily provision, awareness of forgiveness, and abstinence from evil. So that doesn't really answer your question, does it? Wow. Boy, those notes were a dodge. What was that guy thinking?
2: <laughs> but to say that it's a puzzle, and that thats I mean, I can work with that. That it's, because they're, it's, God doesn't tempt us, but this script, this, you know, just the phrases are right. <clears throat> kind of something that, yeah, you got to answer it.
0: You bet. I haven't answered anything tonight yet, have I? All right. We'll give Randy one last chance.
1: Ask an easy question. Well, it builds off of Carol's a little bit, because uh-huh. so Matthew and Luke both say this, he was led by the Spirit, but Mark, Mark says he was driven. Yeah, cast out. Ek yeah. Malo. Yeah, yeah. And I'm curious about the casting out because mm-hmm. it's the same Ekbalo that Jesus does to casting out demons. D- yeah. So yeah, yeah. it's
0: a powerful term. Yeah. To be to be driven out. So it's like it, it shows uh, a supreme act of, of force and sovereignty when when uh, when the spirit just leaves you under such conviction that you've got to get out there and you got to be doing that. Yeah. All right. To uh Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. <coughs> All right, Philippians 3, 17 through 21. And this follows on the heels of 12 through 16, where we're pressing on the upward way. Where uh, We are forgetting what lies behind and we're reaching forward to what lies ahead. We're uh, pressing onward and upward, as it says in verse 14, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And, uh, and so this is a follow-up to that um, and also a, a warning that uh, while we want to follow the right example, there's actually a very dangerous example that we want to steer clear of. And so, verses 17 through 21, it says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things." For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Okay, so there's a lot here. We've got to unpack it all. And uh, we took, I don't know how many classes we took to teach this the first time through, and we'll see if we can do it in a single class tonight or possibly uh, also get part of this on Sunday but we recognize that imitation is the design let me get past this there we go paul made imitations and patterns a focal point for his ministry time and time again he talks about imitating being imitators of god being imitators of christ being imitators of us as we also are imitators of christ phrases like that i mean just look how many times he talks about this in first uh, and second thessalonians first corinthians Here in Philippians, 1st and 2 Timothy, Titus, in so many places. Also, Peter would have a a reference to this with the imitation uh, blessings that we have in the body of Christ. And so this uh, this is really a joy. when When you're to follow an example, join in following my example. Just play Simon says, right? Or play copycat or whatever. You know, you've got an example to follow. Not only are you getting teaching, doctrinal teaching from the apostle. But You also have an exhibition. You've got an exhibit to, to, uh, to learn from and to imitate. And, and that's a positive thing. Not just Paul and his team, but also everyone else. Observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. And so there could be other churches. The Philippians could learn from the Thessalonians or the Bereans or, or other uh, assemblies that have been uh, taught by the Apostle Paul. And that's the positive example. On the flip side is the negative peer pressure, the negative example, these enemies of the cross of Christ that are spotlighted in verses 18 and 19. And that can also become an influence that can be imitated, can be copied. The many walk, and uh, I tell you now, even weeping. And so the blessings here, and really, it's a simplicity, and I think it's part of the human design. I don't know if we'll get into this in anthropology or not, but I mean God designed us to learn, children learn, and much of what they learn is by observing and copycatting and, and as they observe their parents, as they observe older si- uh, siblings and, and things of that nature. And we also tend to form habits. I think habits can be a blessing as well, uh, creatures of habit. God wants us to be habit-forming when we are worshiping Him and devoted to Him and the blessings of, of habitual worship and um, consistent Bible study and so forth, all that's a joy. Uh, The fall course comes in and the the sin that enters into humanity has an impact and now all of a sudden our uh, habit-forming blessing becomes uh, an addiction-forming sin pattern, right? And so what should be a blessing as far as uh, being habit-forming and imitative uh, then uh, falls into the realms of addiction and, and slavery and things like that. So all of this falls into play. And so Local churches now in the church age, we're called uh, uh, parents and children. If you lead someone to the Lord, you you become their spiritual father. Uh, They become your true child in the faith. And we have family language that's applied to the body of Christ. We have brothers and sisters in the local assembly. And so we have the opportunity to imitate one another as brothers and sisters will tend to do. And that's what we see here. The, uh, the importance of right patterns becomes critical in view of the wrong patterns, all too frequently imitated. And that's another reason why if you've got these kind of things creeping into the church, you've got to root them out. You, you can't, uh, good company will corrupt bad morals. You've got to, uh, to remove the wickedness. And, uh, and Paul takes no joy in this. This is his opportunity to be an I told you so and, and it just breaks his heart because he did tell them. He says, uh, uh, I often told you I often told you that worldly believers are going to be worse than uh, unbelievers as far as their attitude, as far as their outlook, and they're going to be very harmful in the assembly. So I've told you often, and now I tell you even weeping. So what's the difference between then and now? Uh, We don't know, but it clearly, I think there's something that's going on in the context of the now that has come to Paul's attention, it's been reported to him, or there's some current event that's happening and which causes him to weep that uh, that uh, the Philippians are going to have to deal with it the way that, uh, that they will. That they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame. And what happens when you become worldly minded, when you set your mind on earthly things? Because we're not an earthly people. We used to be. But when He saved us we, we received a heavenly citizenship and, and now we we still reside on this earth, but it's no longer our home. We now uh, find ourselves as, uh, as fish out of water, so to speak, that we're a new creation still living in this old creation, still living in this fallen body in this old creation. And, um, and so we should have our minds set on the things above. We should be heavenly focused because the more worldly we become, um, well, you see the descriptions of it here, whose God is their appetite. And what, uh, what a terrible form of idolatry that that can become. So there are many wrong walkers, more than we want to admit. And this must be told, and it must be told repeatedly. You've got to spotlight the dangerous thinking. You've got to spotlight the harmful attitudes. You've got to spotlight, it. And, and, and sometimes it's going to be unpleasant. And sometimes it's going to come across, and people are going to be um, resistant and they're going to say, well, why do you keep bashing other churches all the time? No, nope, stop, stop. There's no bashing that's happening here. Uh, I don't bash anybody, but I do try to accurately describe problematic attitudes and where they can filter into local churches because we, we don't want it to be creeping into this local church. And so when he says, I often told you, well, wasn't that enough? Why is he telling them yet again? And uh, so it has to be told often and it must be told repeatedly. This telling makes Paul cry. There's a lot of passages where Paul's just weeping. And these are, uh, you know, don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but, you know, you wonder, what what are you, some kind of weak sister? What what kind of crybaby is the Apostle Paul, you know? I think he has such a spiritual capacity and a sacrificial love for those that he ministered to that it just broke his heart time and time again. Acts chapter 20, uh, he calls for the elders of Ephesus. And he says to them, you yourselves know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Tears and trials. A ministry is not easy. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house? And uh, so we see the tears there. When you get down to verse 31, there's more tears. Uh, He's warning them. And this is, uh, this is significant. He says, uh, verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. He's talking to plural elders to look out for one another, to be on guard against them, themselves, right? And um, this will happen. This is, there's, there's a follow-up to this in First Timothy when he says, the reason I left you in Ephesus is that you can teach certain men to not teach strange doctrines. And because they've they've crept in and started doing that, like I told them in uh, Acts chapter 20. So, uh, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, among you, talking to those elders, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And this is what has to be guarded against. So therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And so there you have it. Philippians 3.18 talks about, I tell you now, even weeping. Acts 20, he's got the tears and trials. Um, 2 Corinthians 2.4. Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, and this is uh, it was called the sorrowful letter. It's uh, we don't have this letter. It's not in our Bible. It's in between First and Second Corinthians. You might think of it as one and a half Corinthians or something, right? But it, it's not in the Bible. It's not can, canonized. It was a painful letter, and uh, and he says, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have, especially for you. And he knew he was going to cause him sorrow. But he was hoping that it would lead to the repentance. Chapter 11 and verse 29. Who is weak without my becoming weak? Who is led into sin without my and this phrase intense concern speaks about uh, the, the tearful worry that happens when you're watching somebody who knows better not living the doctrine that he's been taught. Somebody who knows better that's that's living in defiance of the scriptures because their carnality wants them to, and uh, it's just it's heartbreaking. So far from being a weak sister, Paul had a spiritual sympathy comparable to Jesus. Obviously, Jesus wept, and we know that because of uh, John eleven thirty five. But even in Luke nineteen forty one, we've got uh, another example there too with our Savior, and um, I forget what this context is, but it's. Yeah, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, and uh, yeah, and you can see the uh, the destruction of it that's going to hit them in 70 A.D. So weeping over the city of Jerusalem. Anyway, this is uh, this is curious, and and uh, and I think we want to have the appropriate balance to it. Of course, I think obviously there's ministers and ministries that are uh, pure emotionalism and and melodrama, and and, uh, and you just think, okay, it's kind of a bit thick. But when it's real, when it's genuine, when it's, when it's truly motivated by the Word of God and the, and the leading of the Holy Spirit, uh, I think that it's, it's, it's uh, to try to deny that and then try to dampen that and is, is taking the, the pendulum and swinging it too far the other direction. And, and you want to have the legitimate understanding of our God-given emotions without uh, being enslaved to those emotions and uh, being able to express them appropriately. So there's a lot there that we can glean out of that. Now with respect to these enemies, um, different scholars will take you different ways. Are they saved? Are they unsaved? And I think specifically these guys here that he's talking about are unsaved because it says their end is destruction. And regardless, any, that's not a destiny for any born-again believer. Uh, our end is not destruction regardless of any apostasy that we fall into or any any uh, emotionalism or worldly-mindedness. Um, when you do study Apulia. When you study the destruction, that's not our destiny. In fact, uh, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not. not...apalumi, that's the verb behind the noun apaleia. And so we should not perish. We're not destined for destruction. We're destined for salvation, eternal life in Christ. And so this specific group is uh, is headed for destruction. However... Their mindset can be imitated by those whose end is not destruction. And that's why the warning hits. You know, the warning hits because this thought process that's common among the unbelievers now is rubbing off on the believers. And that shouldn't surprise us because Romans 12 warns us about that. If we're not transformed by the renewing of our mind, then we're going to be conformed to this world, conformed to this age. And so uh, in my thinking, Satan just loves it when he can get a a born-again believer uh, functioning like an unbeliever and thinking like an unbeliever, and having the same attitude that uh, shows solidarity with uh, with everybody else in this fallen world and really shows uh, shows a disagreement with faithful believers that are expressing the Word of God you know when a believer stands up and declares a biblical truth that should not be controversial, uh, but in our culture it 's become hate speech it 's become uh, unacceptable say, especially this month this is Pride month for the for the rebellion against God's designed creation, and uh, and so there you have it. So if you speak out the truth and say this is what God designed for for marital blessings, then oh my, you're uh, you're just lining yourself up for a lot of uh, a lot of hatred. So Matthew seven, Matthew seven, verses thirteen and fourteen, back to this Sermon on the Mount again, where we were earlier. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. So if you're, if you're uh, caught up in the popularity contest, if, you, uh, if peer pressure means a lot to you and you'd rather go along to get along, or uh, you'd like to you know, be in the majority view, um, get used to it. We're, we're a minority position, always have been, always will be. Uh, For for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. And so you're already a minority when you get saved. And then once you're saved you're going to become a minority of a minority when you're a, a disciple living in the Word of God. So out of the whole body of regenerate, how many are living in the Word of God day by day and growing in grace and knowledge? Versus how many are born again but not disciples, See. So you become a minority of a minority at that point. The mindset can be imitated by uh, those whose end is not destruction and then the threefold description that we have here in Philippians three I think this is pretty vivid the uh, the belly idolatry turning personal appetites into idolatry, you know an appetite. Nothing wrong with an appetite. And this, by the way, could be food, it can be sex, it can be alcohol, it could be anything that you develop an appetite for. You develop a, a taste for something, a, a hunger for something. And, uh, and, and they may be very legitimate until sin gets a hold of it and perverts it, until uh, then you carry it to an excess, for example. Gl- uh, gluttony, obviously, is an I- idolatry, drunkenness is an idolatry fornication is an idolatry. And in all these things God has a grace provision for food, for drink, for marital relations. All these things that He's designed for blessing and then sin comes along and perverts them all. But taking a personal appetite and uh, turning it into idolatry, that's thats horrible. You know, I mean of all the gods you can worship and serve, your own appetite is is <laughs> pretty pathetic when it comes right down to it. Some uh, passages that go well with that include Romans 16 and 2 Timothy 3. That's always a good question to ask yourself. You know, who's in charge? You know, do you you control your drinking or does your drinking control you? You know, um, who's calling the shots when it comes to this? And if it's out of your control, then that's an idol. You're a slave. And uh, that's... uh, Got to be repented of. Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learn and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. So it's the same language we have in Philippians 3. And it's curious how they're not simply content to worship their own idol, They're going to cause problems for other people. And and as we see in verse 17, they're causing dissensions and hindrances. Well, you know, why is it that they they feel compelled to influence other people with regard to their own idolatry? In any event, such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting and I think this just becomes part of the you know any any anybody that's walking in idolatry they're they're living in defiance of their own humanity given that we're created in the image and likeness of God and so when when they're missing the mark and when they're serving their idols and when they're walking in darkness there's there's still going to be some aspect of their conscience that's going to be pricked that's going to be goaded that's going to be uncomfortable uh, at least until the point and thank God for that uh, and at least until they reach the point where uh, hardness of heart then see, uh, sears their consciousness with an iron, and once you once you've proceeded that far in darkness, then you have no more guilt, no more shame, no more regrets. Now you're just totally given over into your sin pattern. Um, but there's just something about it, I think, with respect to this, that um, they want to be alternately accusing and excusing. They want to they want to validate their their choices. You know, well, I mean, if you're so proud of your choices, why? Why you know? Do you need the parade? <laughs> why do you need us to validate your choices? I thought you were happy with your choices. Uh, why are you insisting that we celebrate your choices in uh, in some of these things? So um, yeah, why is it by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting? And it just seems like you reach a point where you're really trying to talk yourself into something here that's uh, contrary to your humanity. Second Timothy three four. You talk about an appetite slave, and this is kind of the conclusion to a long description. Realize this: in the last days, difficult times will come. Realize this: we're here, <laughs> okay, here and now. Our culture, men will be lovers of self. I mean, boom! That's us. We're the culture of self-esteem. We're the one. We give everybody a trophy. This is, uh, it's all about you know, aisles and aisles of self-improvement books and all this other stuff. We're all the uh, lovers of self, and uh, the biggest thing in the world, of course, is self-esteem. And you don't want to offend anybody and all that stuff. Lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control. I mean there's no limits. There's no none of that. Brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited. Now here we go. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And it comes down to that. The idolatry of the appetite, whatever gives you pleasure, be the ultimate hedonist of, of uh of, of world history. And it could be, like I say, it could be food pleasure, alcohol pleasure, sexual pleasure, it could be any uh, any kind of pleasure, whatever whatever delights you, whatever pleases you, and make an idol out of it. And that's uh, a description of what we're looking at here. Turning personal appetites into idolatry. Turning shameful things into celebrations. Turning shameful things into celebrations. Again, the description of Philippians 3 is uh, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame whose glory is in their shame. So what do you boast about? What do you glory in? And, uh, you know, and then you realize that, you know, it wasn't that long ago and the thing you're bragging about was something nobody ever talked about, you know, or people who did, they just kind of kept it hush-hush, you know. And and, uh, really, is that something you want to celebrate? And and yet, um, there it is. The Bible talks about um, things not proper to mention, not even to think about such things. And uh, there's there's realms of darkness that really, uh, we we academically we know about them but and, and we we're on guard against them, but we don't want to spend a lot of time thinking about it or poisoning our own minds and, and those kind of things. And uh, when it says things which ought not be mentioned, why are we, our culture seems to be magnifying and celebrating and parading. Those kind of things. So turning shameful things into celebration. We're going to reach a point. Maybe we're already there. What 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 remains shameful? Is there anything that that, that anyone would be embarrassed by in uh, in our culture today? Is I mean, I mean, we would of course because we hold to biblical norms and standards, and we still have biblical consciences, and we are still. We we have capacity for shame because of our conviction for the Word of God, and our love for Jesus. I'm starting to think that the unbelievers and the carnal believers of our day and age—they've got no capacity left. There is no—I um, mean, not only are they not shamed by it, they'll they'll post it on Instagram. I mean, they'll take a picture and and and, and it becomes a becomes a viral thing uh, on the internet. And I don't know. All right. Romans 1 <clears throat> in this uh sequence here where there's giving over giving over giving over and I know the on the screen it says verses 28 through 32 but you're going to notice uh, there's a giving over in verse 24. There's a giving over in verse 26, and then this third giving over is in verse 28. And it just seems that each one of these giving overs is uh, intensive. Each one is uh, is uh, greater than the one before, and it seems like this third one is the final one. That it's it's to me it's worse than the sin unto death. The sin unto death's at least a mercy, you know, end the physical life and you know take them home to heaven or, or send them to, to hell or whatever. But limit the damage that's done in the meantime. But giving somebody over to a lifelong of perversion is, uh, to me, that's an even greater expression of wrath, which is what the chapter is all about. You can spot it in verse 18. The wrath of God is presently now revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is not the lake of fire. This is not hell. This is not a future eschatological wrath. This is the present wrath of God in the church age because the truth has been given. And so for those unrighteous men who suppress the truth, they're accountable. The truth has been given. And there's a witness in creation and there's a special revelation in the Scriptures and there's a whole world full of born-again believers that, uh, that Christ indwells to uh, testify concerning the truth. And they're without excuse. They are without excuse. And so even though they know God, they don't honor Him as God. But their foolish heart is darkened in verse 21. And so they make an exchange. Verse 23 says, exchanging the glory of the incorruptible uh, God for an image in the form of corruptible man, of birds, four-footed animals, crawling creatures, you name it. Humanity can can make an idol out of anything. And so when you exchange God's program for one of your own invention or one of Satan's invention, well, God gives them over. And here's the first giving over. In the lust of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And there's a giving over in specifically sexual sin and the lust patterns that has spiritual and physical consequences. Their bodies become dishonored. And then, if they don't repent at that stage, then it's another giving over. God gave them over to degrading passions. And women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. Now now they're not even, I mean, sin is sin, but this is a sin that's contrary to nature. And uh, women with women, men with men. And receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. The physiological consequences of this death style, I don't call it a lifestyle, it's not an alternative lifestyle, it's a sinful death style is what it is. And uh, you take 20 years off your life in, uh, in the consistent application of this darkness, which is double smoking. Smoking takes 10, year, 10 years off your life, and the Surgeon General puts warnings on those cigarette packs, um, the, uh, the homosexual agenda will take 20 years off your life on average. That's just the the demographics of it. And then the third giving over, the depraved mind to do those things that are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. And notice all this. I mean, man. And... um, Notice it says in verse 32, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And it becomes a mutual admiration society. They start reinforcing one another in the the, uh, idolatry being described here. All right, turning shameful things into celebration, giving hearty approval to those who... Practice them, and this to me is is illogical. This to me is the insanity of it, and it just demonstrates when, when you can pursue such insanity, it's it's not human, and it's uh, it becomes so enslaving at, at so many different levels. In uh, in that, all right. You know, it's curious to me too because I was talking to a an atheist about this the other day, and. Uh, Firmly believes in evolution, firmly believes in Big Bang, totally, totally wrapped up with survival of the fittest and all of that. And I say, well then, okay, on your atheistic views then, the whole um, homosexual phenomena would be um, the species won't survive with that. It's not going to be, uh, so you talk about survival of the fittest, you talk about a, a mutation that's that's harmful. That on the evolutionary view has to uh, has to be destroyed for humanity to advance, or, or we don't have babies in the in the in, and so on. On evolution, you should be making the case more so than on the biblical side of things, right? You know, so whether you are a creationist or an evolutionist, you ought to come to the same conclusion. The word of God says this is destructive, and, uh, and there you have. It. He had no answer for me either, which I thought was interesting. All right. Then the third thing. So, whose God is their appetite it says, who, um, who glory in their shame who set their mind on earthly things. And they've actually had to turn off their spiritual eyes, if they were born again to, believe, to begin with, turning off spiritual eyes and keeping earthly eyes fixed on earthly things. Turning off spiritual eyes and keeping earthly eyes fixed on earthly things. And we're told not to do that. We are a heavenly people. We are uh, spiritual beings. We are born again. We have spiritual eyes. We have eyes to see and we have ears to hear. So let's use them. And that's uh, what we're called to do. Matthew sixteen twenty-three. Hmm. And here's where uh, he's trying to prepare them for the cross. And Peter's got a better idea. Um, I'm not sure what his idea is, except he doesn't want Jesus to go to the cross. So from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine? Yelling at Jesus, rebuking Jesus, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. He rebukes Jesus and he invokes the name of God. God forbid it. Meganoita. Oh, wow. May it never be. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to him, Get behind me, Satan. Some of the strongest language Jesus ever utters, and to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. You realize in his humanity, Peter's words were very tempting for Jesus. The God forbid it, this should never happen to you. That's the battle he had to fight in Gethsemane. And here's Peter voicing it out loud. And how vulnerable, remember the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak, and Jesus testified to that, to to listen to something that would only lead him down the wrong direction. Don't even listen to that. Don't think about that. Don't give that any weight. And so setting your mind on God's interest, that's, that's a satanic, uh, I mean on man's interest, on yourself. The, the essence of Satanism is exaltation of self. Whereas the essence of, of God's plan is the denial of self, serving others, humbling yourself, and uh, applying sacrificial love on behalf of others. And so this becomes then the message on discipleship that follows, if anyone wishes to come after me he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And that's the uh, the application there. Alright, how about Romans 8, 5-7? through 7? To be worldly-minded? Are you kidding? If God wanted you to be worldly-minded then He wasted His time sending Jesus to die on the cross. He could have just left you where you were. <clears throat> I love Romans 8. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. That's so important. We're going to be studying that in Hebrews. The flesh, that's the veil. The veil we pass through is His flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And this then is our grace provision in the church age, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So Jesus' life in the flesh freed us so that now we can walk in the Spirit. And we're not keeping the law. The requirements of the law are kept, or fulfilled really, uh, as we walk in the Spirit following the example of Christ. It goes on to say, for those who are according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. It becomes a mindset where your mind is, where your mind is. The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so, obviously, we have the imperative to be filled with the Spirit, to keep short accounts, to confess our sins, be restored to fellowship. We want to walk in the light as He is in the light. All of these expressions, meaning we want to stay in fellowship. We want to have our mind fixed on the things above. Because uh, just fixing our mind on on earthly things, it becomes a mindset. We become worldly in in our attitude. That's just the way it works. Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2. My favorite baptism text when I bring somebody up out of the water. I have yet to dunk anybody and leave them under there, okay? In every baptism I've ever done, starting with Sharon, my wife was the very first baptism I ever did way back in the day, and all the ones ever since then, I put somebody under the water and I bring them back up because it's the picture of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are in Christ, identified with Christ through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so water baptism is a picture of that. And as you come up out of the water, I like to recite we, we this. In fact, we recite it congregationally. If you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God say, all right, congratulations, you're dead now. Dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. How about that? And so the idea that we who have died to sin shall continue in our sins may never be. Perish the thought that uh, we're, we're dead to sin. We're alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also be revealed with Him in glory. There's a revelation coming up. Each one of us revealed in glory, in Christ, and these are the things we want to be focused on. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So that's our joy as well. The antidote to earthly mindedness is our heavenly citizenship. An imminent homecoming via the rapture of the church. The antidote to earthly mindedness is our heavenly citizenship. We get so wrapped up over all these things that won't matter at all when that trumpet sounds. You know, and how silly are these worries that we have and these concerns that we have. And uh, and that my dad used to like to say, 10,000 years from now, what difference will it make? And the point being, of course, is that on an eternal scale, these things, uh, you know, the things of earth grow strangely dim. You know, the momentary light affliction is not worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory. And, uh, And that. All right. (coughs) we're going to need a second class of review to get through this because we've got the great rapture doctrine here. But think about it. What what an antidote to earthly mindedness. Realizing that uh, it's not worthy to be compared. When we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun. Right? What difference will it make? All this stuff we're fretting about here on earth and Arguing about this and arguing about that, and all wrapped up around different political things, or uh, even worse, sporting events, or you know, some other trivial thing that we think is the end of the world. And uh, really, uh, ten thousand years from now, are we going to care? Is it going to make any difference at all related to these things? Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we eagerly waiting? Are we on the edge of our seats? Are we are we day by day, moment by moment, uh, hoping to depart this earth when that trumpet sounds? I mean, is that really the case? I think the sad thing, of course, is that worldly believers are just fine and dandy staying here. Now, I mean, they don't want to go to hell when they die, that's a given. But, you know, but they're not in a hurry to get to heaven either, because they're kind of having fun in the here and now, and they're very worldly-minded in the here and now, and and, uh, you know, their sin nature gets stoked in the here and now. And all that fun and games ends when they leave their sin nature behind in this world. The biggest thing that doesn't want to leave, doesn't want you to leave this world, is the sin nature that can't leave this world with you. And so built into your humanity is this, uh, we talk about a preservation instinct, it's just a sin nature instinct that wants to keep, keep thriving. And because uh, you're the host, and when it loses you, it's done. So uh, these things I think are, in, are good as well. We'll come back to this on Sunday morning because we want to make sure we're solid on the rapture doctrine. Plus I love teaching the rapture anyway. And uh, that was point five in the outline with the subpoints A, B, C, and D. And uh, we'll go through those on Sunday. Lord willing and uh, rapture pending. If the trumpet sounds between now and then I won't have to teach it. We'll just watch it. It'll, it'll, uh, it'll unfold on that basis. So, all right. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for your truth. I do thank You for the heavenly mindedness that we're called to uh, to imitate. And even our Savior testified to this. He stood before Pilate. He made the good confession before Pilate. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. And if it were so, my, my servants would be fighting. And, uh, and Father, I think that we need to pay attention to what our Savior was saying there, Father, that this world is not our home. And and uh, we, we are fighting over things we shouldn't be fighting over and when we get misdirected to, to, uh, to earthly things. Father, keep our attention where it needs to be. Might we be focused entirely upon the glory of our Savior? Might we be eager to tell others, Father, we live in this dark world with folks that don't, uh, uh, don't know the, the glory that we know. And so, Father, I pray that we would uh, testify uh, concerning the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into light that uh, we would redeem the time, Father, because the days are evil. So thank You for this doctrine. Thank You for the two years we've spent in the book of Philippians. Thank You for this review that's been so uh, encouraging and edifying. And uh, in all things, Father, we just commit to You, uh, the members of Austin Bible Church, that what we're learning, we will live, we will uh, live it out in application. Uh, Father, sustain us through uh, through the time of testing You've called upon us to uh, to endure. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.